Bible will be read Genesis 50, 12 to 21, and that's on page 57 if you have a church Bible. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Maom, which Abram had bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite, along with the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, don't be afraid. I am in the place am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. If uh, you ask the average person today, why are you not a Christian? I don't think they would say it's because I struggle to believe in of the miracles of the Bible. I don't think they would object, they wouldn't be of their first thoughts to say, well, I don't think the Bible is realistic or I don't think it is a reliable or authentic. I don't think they would start with objections at that point about miracles or about the reliability of the Bible. They might come later. I think the objections in the modern world are not so much intellectual as they are personal. What do I mean? Rather than I have trouble believing in miracles, I think the objections that most people offer today are, if there is a God, why does he let this happen to me? Why is there potentially a third world war about to happen if there is a God who you say is in control? If God is kind, why is he letting that happen on the world stage? And why is he letting this happen in my life and in my home? Those would be more likely the objections that I think you'll get if you stood by Epsom Station or a station of your choice and just did a straw poll about why people don't believe in God, why people don't believe in the Bible. This uh, story of Joseph that we began uh, three Sundays ago, and we've been working through in the month of February very kindly in God's timing, has been answering those big questions of life, the ones that don't get any bigger than that. But they answer them through a story, not through a a neat answer that you can say in one minute, perhaps on a Vox clip or on a TikTok stationary video not dancing behind. The story of Joseph tells this. God is not absent, even though he appears hidden. He is not impotent, even though he appears silent. God is working behind the scenes of our world and of our lives. Often when things look like they're going most wrong, when things are most difficult, God is most profoundly working for our good. And that is a hard truth, but a truth that the story of Joseph has reminded us of. Let's look at uh, chapter 50. Please have it on your lap. 
This is the end of the story. This is the last event. Look at verse 15. Joseph's father, Jacob, has just died. Look at verses 16 to 18. As soon as Jacob dies, the brothers, as it were, send a message, a text message, a a carrier pigeon, one on a camel. Who knows? But they send a message and it gets to Joseph, who's risen from, from the prison to the palace. And this is what they want to say. Dad says to be nice to us. That's my paraphrase. Dad says don't go hard on us. Dad says don't kill us. Dad says be kind. And do you know why Joseph is weeping? Because of the wonderful act of restitution that was there in chapter 45. There was reconciliation as uh, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. There was weeping and there was embracing. There was forgiveness, even for the fact that he was sold by them into slavery and they ruined his life in the most profound and damaging way. But the reconciliation isn't complete. Look at verses 19 to 21. Three sentences that are very deep and are very profound. In these three sentences, the reconciliation is completed. The story comes to an end. There's a man called Derek Kidner. He's written a lot about the story of Joseph and he says this profound sentence or two on these three sentences, verses 19 to 21 of Genesis chapter 50. This is what Kidner says. Each sentence of his threefold reply to this, Dad says, be kind to us, is the very pinnacle of Old and New Testament faith, says Kidner. To leave all of the writing of one's wrongs to God To see God's providence in man's malice. To repay evil, not only with forgiveness, but also with practical affection or attitudes, attitudes which anticipate Christ-likeness. There's no finer example of faith in the whole Bible, says Derek Kidner, than what you find right here. After all that has happened to him, we see God's grace embodied and enfleshed in Joseph in verses 19 to 21 of Genesis chapter 50. This is a hallmark, a hallmark of approval, a stamp of approval to show that God has done a deep work in the heart of Joseph. There are three statements. Look at verse 19. Joseph, he avoids God's chair. Think about that in a moment. Verse 20. Joseph, he he takes and gets God's view. He gets perspective uniquely. Verse 21, he shows a great image, a demonstration of God's love. Let's work through them. First of all, Joseph, he teaches us through these three sentences what genuine Christian faith looks like. And it begins with verse 19. Joseph avoids God's chair. Now, here's a picture on the screen of a chair. I don't know if every household has this dynamic, but there is a chair, perhaps that it's mum's chair. Don't you dare sit there. Perhaps it's dad's chair. Perhaps it's the dog's chair. If it's a dog's chair and it still has remote control, I've got questions for you. See me after the service. But most homes have dad's chair or mum's chair. And woe betide if you sit your backside in mum or dad's chair. Dad's chair is defined as probably the one with the best, clear, unobstructed view of the TV, not the garden. Um, unless you're Monty Don. Uh, and of course, therefore, you have a little small table, perhaps to the side, where refreshments can be served and delivered and enjoyed. Um, then to the left hand, there are, of course, at least one, if not four remote controls. 
Now the laughter indicates that this is true in your home. <laughs> Woe betide if you go into that chair. Perhaps dad, mum sits there and they're just shoulders on to the garden or TV. Uh, or perhaps they just prefer to put their right leg over and they are then at ease when they remove their tie from the busyness of the day. Stay out of that chair because you do not have the authority to be there. The Bible says that God has a chair. More importantly and more accurately, it says that God has a throne. It's not a place of comfort, it's not a place of uh, controls, but it is a place of unrivaled majesty. It is a place that uh, God's unlimited power is displayed. It's a place that is unaffected by anything outside of himself, says A.W. Pink. It's a place where God rules and reigns the nations. It's a place where God, at his bidding, causes seasons to begin and end. It's a place that, at his bidding, cancerous cells can be banished from. It's a place that, when his word goes out in authority and power, worlds are created, galaxies are sustained, hearts start beating, hearts stop beating. God is unrivaled in his glorious nature and beauty and majesty. And no one but God should sit on his throne. Look at verse 19. Here are the brothers. Be kind to us. Dad said so. And look at what has happened by the grace of God in the heart of Joseph through all the trials that God has been with him in the midst of and in control of every step of the way. Verse 19, he says... Am I in the place of God? This is one of the most important themes of the whole Bible because so often we don't get in mum or dad's chair but we think it's our right as recovering control freaks to sit in God's chair. But we don't. There are at least three ways. There are many more but three ways I want us to think about the danger of sitting in God's chair, his throne. The first way is by becoming your own moral authority. You make the rules. This is where the whole uh, derailment of history from our perspective happens back in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, God's uh, vice regents, his rulers over creation, Adam and Eve, are enjoying God's world and then temptation comes from Satan. God said, you can eat from every single tree in the garden that I've created for your enjoyment. It expresses my goodness and my delight in you, but there is one you must not eat from. Satan comes along and whispers a truth to them. But the lies begin. If you eat from that tree, you will be like God. You will know the knowledge of good and evil. He's tempting them to say, you get to choose where the lines are drawn. You get to be your own moral authority. You can dethrone God from his throne and you can be sat in his place. It can be your world. It can be under your rules. You are the ultimate supreme authority. That's the lie that they hear. Now we can be more subtle now, but we're very good at being our own moral authority, aren't we? I mean, here you are with the Bible. And as I've said to many people over the years, when it comes to the Bible, whether it's on a, a screen, a gadget, whether it's, showing my age, I despise technology, or whether it be a good old-fashioned paper copy, do you sit beneath the authority of God's word or do you sit above it? Do you pick out the bits that you like and ignore the bits you don't? Do you have a soft and tender heart? 
to listen to God's standards revealed through God's word? Or is it something that you can leave and pick up when you wish? You can get in God's chair by being your moral authority in that way. You can get in God's chair, God's throne, by placing yourself so that you become codependent on people. You think you have the ability to meet people's deepest needs. But if you think you can do that, people will crush you. Only God can meet people's deepest needs. Here is Joseph, and some people come to him, his brothers, and say, be kind to us. And he resists with all the authority that he had in Egypt and says, am I God? He gets out of God's chair. He gets out of God's chair. He does that by not being someone who makes the moral rules. Here's the second way that you can get yourself in God's chair. That's by overly worrying. In Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these words, Why do you worry so excessively about what you eat or about what you will put on or about your health? Only your Father in heaven knows exactly what you need. And only your Father in heaven has the ultimate power to give you what you need. Why do I worry so much? Why do you worry so excessively? Because I think you think, let's be truthful about this, you think we know better than God. We, know, think, we, we, we think we know what we need today. We think we know what next week should look like. We think we know what our future should look like. We think we will do a better job of ruling my life and our world than God will. That's why we worry. Because my plan looks like it's not going to come into fruition. I'm afraid that God will get it wrong. I'm afraid that he can't see all that I can see. And so I want to take matters into my own hand. It's the fuel of worry. And it's the heartbeat of pride. Get yourself out of God's chair. Resist overly worrying by saying, I would like this to happen, but I'm not in your throne. I cannot see what you see. God, I trust you. You are good. You've revealed your character all through the Bible and all through my life. I cannot see the future, but I trust and I trust in you alone. You get out of God's chair. The more you say that, the more your worry will become manageable. Here's the last way, keeping a grudge. Keeping a grudge can be so sweet. Gives you authority over people. Here they come, verse 19, and Joseph says, don't be afraid, am I in the place of God? He could have kept a grudge. He could have used his authority and power to just tear them limb from limb made a public display of them. He could have gone to town on them. It could have been a slow and painful and pleasing death. Vengeance is mine, says Joseph, but he didn't. Because he knows, Romans chapter 12, vengeance is mine, is said only by God and God alone. I will repay, says the Lord. God is saying, get out of my chair. When you hold on to a grudge, it can be so sweet, can't it? When you're resentful in your heart, when you keep a grudge because you think you're in the right and the other person is wrong, you hold on to anger like it's a trinket, like it's a a badge of honour. You've hurt me and I'm going to show you how much you've hurt me. Joseph does not do that. He has every right to do that and he does not do it. He recognises that only God sits on the throne. Only God can see everything clearly. He's been shown by the Holy Spirit, he must have been, not to hold on to what is hard and cold-making in your spirit. That sweet morsel of self-righteousness 
and wanting to get revenge can do you terrible harm for years and years and years. It can ruin your life. It can damage families with irreparable damage. The longer you don't forgive someone, the longer you nurse a grudge, you become self-centred, you become self-pitying, you become self-absorbed. The world gets smaller. All you're concerned about is you. All that begins to happen. And God has done such a deep work in the heart of Joseph that that is not happening in his heart. Here's this great and profound irony. The fastest way for you to become like Satan is to try to be like God. If you try to be God, you will actually become like Satan. But if you refuse to be like God, if you refuse to place yourself on his throne, if you refuse to place yourself in his place, if you refuse to hold on to grudges and uh, be vindictive and long for revenge at your hands about people that have hurt you deeply and profoundly, if you refuse to do that, that is the fastest way to be a kind, generous, godly person that is embodying and showing the fruit of the Spirit. Do not sit in God's chair, verse 19. Joseph is uh, imbibing for us this grace-changed, God-empowered heart. Where do you see that? Don't sit in God's chair. Get off his throne. Sit under his loving rule. The other points are a lot shorter. Do not be afraid. Here's the second thing he does in verse 20. Joseph takes God's view. I've had the privilege recently of being in some mountains. There's a lovely difference in the mountain region, wherever it is in the world of the valley floor and being up on a mountain peak. When you're on the valley floor, shadows hit you, the coldness is around for longer, things seem bigger as you uh, look up, but the temptation is always to look down at your toes rather than at the skies above your head. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, even Epsom Downs as well. When you're down in the high street, you can't see Epsom Downs. When you're on Epsom Downs, you can see the beauty of London, you can see the beauty of Gatwick, the concrete jungle that it is, you can see the beauty of God's world. You can see the sky. When you're up on the mountaintop, you can see even further. You get perspective that you cannot get when you're on the valley floor. You all know what that's like. When you've been up in a hot air balloon, when you've been on a plane, when you've been up in a tall building, height gives you perspective. Look at verse 20. It's a remarkable sentence. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. When things go wrong, when you're in the valley of the shadow of death, when you're suffering, when people hurt you, perspective can be in very, very short supply. Down in the valley, it's very hard to hold together the two truths that Joseph holds together in verse 20. The evil, the darkness, the sadness, the tears of the broken world in which we live because of our deliberate decision to turn our back on a loving and good God, but also the goodness and the kindness of God that works all things for good. You meant it for evil, suffering, brokenness, difficulty, decay, stuff gets broken and stolen. People get taken away from us and yet there is goodness and light and uh, tasty things and good wine and beautiful sunsets. God works his purposes out. It's so easy to live life in a, in a binary perspective. What do I mean? Life is good, 
therefore God is good. Life is bad, I'm in the valley, therefore God is absent, if he's there at all. But not for Joseph. Joseph, by God's grace, holds together these two great perspectives as he's taken by the Spirit of God and sees the perspective of God over his life. You intended it for evil, evil actions of wicked men who happened to be from his own family. But God was over all and he intended it for good and for the saving, verse 20, of many lives. My life was hard because of your actions, says Joseph. It was filled with pain, decades, long periods of time when I couldn't see God's hand at work. I didn't see my father's face for a long period of time. You treated me as dead. You lied to my father and yet I forgive you because I see God's hand. He had greater purposes even using your wicked actions. Down in the valley it's either life is good or life is bad. God is there or he's not. But up on the mountain life is terrible. I've had a terrible week. Think of what's been shared already in the service. I've had a terrible month. I'm at my wit's end. But God is good. How can Adrian say that? How can Sue and Chris testify to that? How can Catherine reinforce that? Because by the Spirit of God and by the Spirit of God alone, they're not, they might be in the valley, but they can see the plans and purposes of God. Joseph takes God's view. And it's something that only God can give. The Bible is incredibly realistic about life speaks of the difficulties of life. Read the Psalms. Brokenness, sorrow, loss, fear, anxiety, depression. Everything that we struggle with is spoken about in the Bible. There is evil, real, uncomputable evil in the world in which we live. Just think of the week that's passed. But, verse 20 in the whole Bible, God is always at work. He's never absent. He's never off his throne. His plans are perfect and it may not be able to be clear in our lives or on a global perspective for years until we can look back and see what God was working, how he was weaving his divine plan. It may be decades, it may be centuries before you can look back and see that God was not hidden. He was very much at work. Try and see life, not from a human perspective, but from God's view. Only the Holy Spirit can open your eyes for you to see that. And this has huge implications. To paraphrase verse 20, Joseph is saying, you thought you could sink me, but God was at work. In fact, nothing can sink me. God is so in control of history and our lives and every atom in our being and in our world not an inch of the universe in which he does not say, mine. That you cannot muck up your life. You can make deeply foolish choices that have huge implications that we will be responsible for, but God is still at work in our mistakes. He's still at work in the evil actions of brothers. He's still at work with the evil actions of men who nailed the Son of God to a cross, Acts chapter 2. You cannot ruin your life. Trusting God, seeing his handiwork, gives you that perspective that only he can give. It's not down in the valley, it's up in the mountaintop. Two things that only the Holy Spirit enables us to hold together. We live in a world, verse 20, that is full of sin. 
you intended it for harm. You wanted to harm me. But God used your actions for good. And that through my life and my hardship, many lives have been saved. God is that big. The safety is in the deep, in the deep things of his character, not in the shallows. Our God is bigger than that. He's deeper than that. Finally, what does Joseph do from verse 21 as he models faith? He demonstrates God's love. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly to them. He's loving his enemies. Here is Joseph again. He, could have, he just could have nuked them. He could have just destroyed them. He could have made a public spectacle of them. He could have got awful revenge on them. But what does he do? You're safe. You've nothing to be afraid of. I'm going to provide for you, not just you. I'm not just not going to harm you. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your children and I'm going to reassure you of my love. I have nothing but good in my heart towards you, even though you had nothing but evil in your heart towards me. How is that possible? Because of a deep and a profound work of God in his heart. This is only possible as he, he demonstrates God's love to them because of points one and two. Joseph can love the enemies who happen to be from his own family because he did not put himself in God's place. He's humble. He's that humble. God is in control. I cannot see the future, but I trust God. Secondly, he didn't have God's view. But when he got God's view, he's that confident. So he's humble in himself, but he's greatly confident in what God is doing and his power. If you're going to love your enemies, whoever that may be, globally, personally, privately, you must have enormous humility. But you also must have enormous confidence. Just reflect on Joseph's life. Remember the spoiled brat we met in Genesis chapter 37? He knew nothing of God's unmerited grace. He thought he was the bee's knees. You'll be bowing down before me. Even you, mum and dad. We're going to turn the order of society right on its head. And then God did a deep and a profound work in his life through hardship. And he's seen and sensed and experienced the unmerited, undeserved grace of God. And when you see that, that and that alone can humble you, but also exalt you and assure you. You're humbled because you say, I don't deserve anything that God has given to me. But you're reassured by saying, I don't trust in my performance. I am who I am by the grace of God. Oh, how the grace of God amazes me. It gives you the ability to love people that have harmed you deeply. Joseph did not put himself in the place of God. He resisted that temptation that I so often fall into because he wasn't God. But Jesus was also betrayed. Jesus was also given a cup of suffering. But Jesus Christ, though he deserved to be in the place of God, he didn't. Why? For me and for you. See, Joseph, he was given a cup by his brothers. This isn't something my brothers really gave me, he said in his heart. Verse 20, this is something that God gave me. Joseph had a cup of suffering and he embraced it. And he could forgive them all because he saw God's hand. But Jesus Christ was given a cup of suffering. They were betraying him. They were killing him. And he called it the cup of his father. The cup my father has given to me. 
See, Jesus is the ultimate Joseph. Jesus is the ultimate example of being a good, being brought out of terrible evil. Jesus says, here's the good. I died for you. I was in the place of God, but I didn't put myself in the place of God. Rather, I put myself in the hands of wicked men. I became a servant. I became poor. I was killed for you. And that's why the cross is the greatest example of God bringing good out of evil. If he can humble Joseph that much, with the limited view of God's grace that he experienced in a very real way, what about the power of the cross? The power of the cross is the ultimate source of power to humble even the hardest of hearts. And it does two things. It humbles you. It humbles your heart, but also it exalts you. It reassures you of the grace of God, that I am who he says I am, not who I think I am. What assurance there is in this message. That's why Derek Kidner can say, verse 19 to 21, each sentence of this reply is the pinnacle of faith. For someone to be able to leave their rights, the writing of one's wrongs to God, for someone to be able to see man's providence and malice, and yet not to repay evil, but to forgive, for someone to exhibit practical affection and attitudes, pointing others to Jesus, even towards their enemies. That's the gospel according to Joseph. 